This morning we'll look at uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. It's on page 983 there in your pew Bible, if you're looking there. But let's pray before we read God's Word together this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful that You speak to us, that You call out to Your people, that You reveal Yourself to us. May we not miss it today. May we not turn a deaf ear to your word. May you still our minds from oh, all their machinations and routes that they will run down and the alleys that they will, they will journey down. Help us to stay focused on your word. Would you take our hearts where they are stony? We pray, Lord, that you would make them soft to your word. Where our affections are cold, would you stir them and light them on fire by your word, that you might receive the glory and honor and praise from our lives that you deserve. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14, this is the word of God. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. We were sitting in a session meeting uh, this week, an elders meeting here at URC. Uh, the elders of this church meet twice a month, uh, most months, some months we meet once a month, and usually it's for about five hours or so, and in those meetings we pray. We pray for you, uh, we pray for the church, we wrestle through different pastoral issues, uh, we talk about the future of the church, and we study together. We read a book together and study together. And this week, uh, we were reading a book together and studying together, and part of that study led to a discussion about what are the strengths of University Reformed Church. And one of the elders mentioned that he was thankful that we are a praying church. And I commented that one of the things I most love about University Reformed Church is that it's not just the elders who pray, but it is you who pray and love listening to your prayers, especially in that Sunday evening prayer service as we gather together on that first Sunday of each month, Sunday evening, and we pray together. Uh, next Sunday will be one of those Sundays. We encourage you to come. There's free pizza, if nothing else. Well, by donation, but there's pizza. So Come. No other reason. The kids love to come to prayer meetings for that reason. 
And I love our prayer meetings. Uh, you don't have to pray out loud at them, but many do. And I love that as we sit in this room, you hear the prayers of old saints. And you prayer, hear the prayers of zealous college students. And then, confessedly my favorite, you hear the prayers of some of our young children who have the courage and the strength to voice a prayer out in front of a room of a whole bunch of adults. It just, it just delights me. I think it delights our Father as well. I was sharing uh, this scene with a group of pastors a number of months ago. We were sitting around and talking about our churches, and I was telling them about our prayer meetings and telling them about old saints praying and zealous young college students praying and little children praying, and one of my pastor friends said, Jason, stop it. I said, what? He said, stop telling us about your church in that way. He said, it just makes me jealous. Uh, he wants a church that gathers together to pray. Prayer is the language of the people of God. Pray without ceasing, the Apostle Paul said. Jesus says, when you go, when you go into your closet to pray. Why? Because this is what God's people do. We speak to the one we love, we pray. And I hope that URC will always be a praying church, and even that we would grow in it. And for us to do so, that requires that each of us strive to be those who Pray that we be praying individuals. In fact, one of the greatest services that you and I can render to the church and to one another and to the kingdom is to be prayer warriors, to lift one another up in prayer. It, it's not often seen, it doesn't get a lot of acclamation, and yet it can be one of the greatest services for the sake of the kingdom. It can accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. So it's no mistake that, as Evan just pointed out this morning, that during this transition time that the elders have asked you to pray. They've given you each week different things to pray through in the email and in the bulletin. And the search team gave you a whole card of things to pray for this morning. I want you to pray, to, to, to bring each other, for us to bring one another up before the throne of grace. If we love people, this is one of the best ways that we can love them. It's to bring them before the throne of grace. Paul prays in a very instructive way in this passage. And I think has much to teach us about prayer here. He hears of the faith of these Colossians and he prays for them. This is real love. This is real affection. He cares for them and so he prays for them. And how he prays for them is instructive. Because we think about prayer, there are different ways to think about it. There are prayers of adoration and prayers of supplication and prayers of pleading and prayers of thanksgiving and prayers of intercession. Those are all different types of prayers we could go on. We could also categorize prayer by its setting, that it's public or that it's private prayer. We could also talk about prayer by the forms that it takes, such as studied prayer or written prayers or extemporaneous prayers. Or we could categorize prayers by the extent of the prayer. 
my little mind. This is often how I think about it. There are small prayers, and there are medium prayers, and there are big prayers. All good prayers. Some will say that small prayers are too small, and they're trite, and you shouldn't waste God's time, but it's just nonsense. Praying for lost keys and for parking places and grocery store parking lots, it's it's fine prayers. They're fine prayers. God loves to hear from His children. He He cares for His children, no matter the issue, no matter how small. So small prayers are good prayers. Most of our prayers tend to be what I would call medium-sized prayers, where we pray for someone that is sick, or we pray for a new job, or we pray for the baby that's going to be born, or we pray for the food that we're about to eat, that God would bless it to our bodies. And those are good prayers and should often be on our lips. But when I study the Scripture... And what I see in the Scriptures time and again on different pages of the Scriptures are what I would call big prayers. I think of Jesus' prayer in John 17. That longest recorded prayer of Christ in the Bible. It's a prayer that expects much. Almost to the point that we want to dismiss it as poetic language. Because Jesus there in John 17, He prays That the church, his people, would be one even as he and the Father are one. As he and the Father are one. There is no more unity than in the Godhead. That the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit enjoy with one another and have enjoyed for all of eternity. And yet he prays that we would be one as they are one. It's a big prayer. Now, we may be prone to pray that prayer, but we couch it, wouldn't we? We pray, oh, Father, help us to be one as you and the Son are one. But, but we, we know we can't be quite as one as you and the Son are one because you are infinitely holy and righteous and you've forever been one. And we're in the flesh and we're sinful, but, but as much as we can be one, as you are one, make us one. Jesus doesn't pray that way. He he doesn't hedge his prayer. There's no qualifications. There's no discouraging outlook. Look, he prays a big prayer. Paul follows Christ's example time and again in the scriptures by praying in the same way. I think about Ephesians 3, maybe my favorite prayer in all the Bible where Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. Again, a very big prayer. He prays that they, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's a grand prayer huge prayer. Paul's saying that all of the expanse of creation cannot contain the love of Christ. If Christ's love were measurable, its height would exceed the heavens. Its depths would penetrate the deepest sea. Its breadth would span the universe and its length would be unending. And yet he prays that they would know that fullness that is immeasurable that they would know the fullness of that love. 
And he doesn't qualify it. He doesn't hedge it. It's a big prayer. He does the same in our text this morning. He, he prays a very big prayer for the Colossian church. Look at the wording with me, if you will, starting in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance with patience and joy, giving thanks to the Father. It's a big prayer. There's no hedging in Paul. Paul can pray this prayer because this knowledge of God's will already belongs to these Colossian Christians because they are in Christ. He's not praying for some kind of new work in them. He's not praying that they would come to a new knowledge, something different. That was the heresy of the false teachers in Colossae. They were promoting a kind of Gnosticism, a different secret knowledge that people needed in order to be saved. But Paul's not like them. He's praying that these Colossian Christians would be filled with the knowledge of God and His will for their lives, which was already theirs in Christ. He wants them to grow in what they already know, to possess more fully what is already theirs, to be filled, as it were, to the brim with this knowledge of God and His will. It was... um, in Northern Ireland, preaching at a conference a month and a half ago. And, and though we speak a, the same language as the people in Northern Ireland, we use very different words than, than they do. I've never heard the word we so much in all my life. We never use that word in America. And these Scotch-Irish, they use that word for everything. They they would ask questions or they would make statements and they would say, well, how do you like our wee little island? They would say, do you want a wee cup of tea? Or did you take a wee nap this afternoon? Or we enjoy this wee sunshine today. I was telling them that they like that word so much that they, they use it redundantly. They would say over and over, they would say, uh, do you like this we little church? Say, look, we and little are the exact same term. They mean the same thing. You might be overusing it if you're doing that. And yet there was a night we were at a pastor's house for dinner. One night with he and his family. And when the dessert came to the table, none of the kids used the word we. It was as if their Scotch-Irish vocabulary disappeared. All they wanted was more. More. Taking ice cream can have a way of changing your vocabulary just a wee bit. (laughs) When you possess something good, you want more of it. He, He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, more of it. 
but not just more of it, but all of it. He, he prays that they would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he prays because only God can give it. Knowledge of God is spirit-given. The Holy Spirit is only mentioned once in this letter, but the person of the Spirit is clearly inferred here. He, he doesn't just want them to have wisdom and understanding, but He says spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is Spirit-given wisdom and understanding. Because there are many wicked people who have knowledge of God's will. Paul says, in fact, that all men know it in Romans 1, but they hate it. It takes a work of the Spirit to not only illumine an individual's mind with the knowledge of God, but, but to inflame our heart and to, to stir our affections and, and move our will to, to live in accordance with His will. And so Paul prays that for them. That they would know the will of God in complete and full wisdom and understanding that the Spirit would, would press it home in them well it up within them, and that they would be shaped by it. Notice, though, that it isn't just knowledge and understanding as an end in itself that, that Paul prays for. Look at verse 10. He prays that he wants them to know the will of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. The aim of the prayer for them is godly living, pious living in, in every step that they take in life. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. In Reformed theology in recent years... Uh, People have begun using the term to describe it as a, as a big God theology. I'm okay with that. That's good. I, I like it. I like sovereign God theology or something better, but that's good. We'll take big God theology. Reformed theology has also had quite a view on sin in its history. We have a big sin theology. As we believe in the total depravity of men, that you and I are corrupted in every part of our being as we are born into this world. Our minds are fallen and our hearts are fallen and our affections are fallen and our wills are fallen. Every part of our being has fallen. And so what do you do if you have a big God theology and a big sin theology? You do what Paul does. You pray big prayers. You have to practice praying big prayers. That sin might be vanquished. That a big God might do away with big sin. Paul prays that they would have knowledge of God's will with all wisdom and understanding so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. That's a big prayer. That's a good prayer. You see the line of thought here. Paul, Paul's prayer here asserts the fact that true knowledge leads to true living. Or right knowledge leads to right living. That there's no way to reach verse 10 without verse 9. 
But verse 9 should lead to verse 10. That is, you cannot walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him without having knowledge, true spiritual wisdom and understanding. God does not value ignorance. But neither does he value bare cognitive understanding. Spiritual knowledge leads to spiritual living. And this is what pleases God. Right thinking manifests itself in right living. So he prays that. As a man thinks, so he is. All beings will act according to their understanding. There's never a separation between cognition, knowing, and volition, willing. We always choose what we understand to be of the greatest value. And so Paul here is praying that they would understand with a greater degree the very will of God, that they would treasure it above all else, and that that might inform their living. That might shape them. Let's think about that together for a second. Right knowledge, right understanding. There's all types of knowledge out there, all types of understanding out there. Most of us in this room have spent at least... 12 years in an academic setting. In a university town, many of you spent 16 years or 22 years or even 26 years learning. We're studying all kinds of different disciplines. We poured over books on mathematics and philosophy and history and educational philosophy and business and science. And there are other realms we will spend years on the soccer field practicing in ballet lessons or piano lessons or cooking classes or art lessons. Why? All to gain knowledge that we might know so we can be proficient in some given realm or discipline or activity. It's right and it's good. But can we remind ourselves this morning and agree That spiritual wisdom and understanding is to be the most sought after knowledge. It's the jewel of all knowledge. Theology used to be called the queen of the sciences. And rightfully so. Why? Because it is the most beneficial. Knowledge of parenting and how to cook and how to fix things in your house, it reaps many benefits. Some of you that know how to do that should come over to my house. I need some of your benefits. But all those benefits are temporal. They fade away. Knowing quadratic equations and educational philosophies and veterinary science can secure a job. They can provide an income. They can stimulate the mind. All good. But its benefits will eventually disappear. Spiritual knowledge benefits us for all of eternity. God does not value ignorance. It's a common error that I think has marked some Christians that sit in the pews over the years. And there is an equally or even more horrific error that has marked pastors as they stand in pulpits over the years. The person in the pew can hear such a text and think that 
gaining knowledge of spiritual things is simply the duty of the pastor. It's it's his job to be filled with the the fullness of all the knowledge and understanding and wisdom of God. That's his job. That's what we pay him for. And he's got the time. He's got the time to study, the time to read, the time to pray. Let the professional worry about such things. That's an error. Notice Paul prays this prayer for the Colossian church. Not not, not the pastors, but the church as a whole. All the members of the church that they might grow in this spiritual knowledge. The reverse can be true of the pastor in the pulpit, and too often has been the case. He can think that his job is just to prepare the meal for others to eat, that he himself doesn't need to digest it or meditate upon it or be changed by it. Ah, that, that is an even more awful error. To be filled with all the knowledge of God and His will so that we, we might walk in a manner that is fully pleasing to Him and worthy of Him, that we as Christians, as a church, unified together, might be fully pleasing to Him together. Paul will echo this idea in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says this. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to love and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You already have this truth. You're already pleasing God. Now grow in it. That you might please Him more and more. That's a call upon our lives. Universal Reformed Church. That's what we're aimed at. That's what we're striving after. Isn't that the wish of every Christian? Oh, that I might see God more. That I might understand Him more fully. That I might appreciate Him more. So that my life might be conformed to His likeness more that I might give glory to Him more. That's the heartbeat of the Christian. The more we know of Him, the more we'll want to honor Him, and thus the more we will please Him. As Christians, we're practitioners. We don't just believe, we, we do. We dare not separate knowledge and living. In fact, in a Jewish mind and in the Christian mind, a person does not know something unless they do. True spiritual knowledge results in true spiritual living. The same goal lies before us, URC. It hasn't changed. We're to keep walking together. That's what Paul says in verse 10, isn't it, that we might walk. Pilgrims, pilgrims walking together, joined together, aimed at the same goal, to live in a manner that pleases and gives glory to our Father. To 
Universal Reformed Church, let's keep at it. Keep walking. Together. I need your help. You need my help, and we need each other's help. Chrysostom, one of the greatest Christian preachers of all time, an early church father in the 4th century, was commenting on this text, and he said this. He said, as in the race we especially wish well to and excite by our encouragement and our cheers those who are not far from victory, so in the race of the Christian life we ought chiefly to favor and assist with our prayers those whom we perceive pressing with eagerness to the destined goal. It is as we would stand alongside the road as our friend is racing down it and cheer for him or her as she's running along to encourage them, keep going, finish the race. So he's saying the chief way that you and I do that for one another, in the race of the Christian life, the walk of the Christian life, is that we lift each other up in prayer. We, we place each other before the throne of grace. We call out to God for one another. Strive to grow in knowledge so we might walk in a manner fully pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray for each other in that regard. You know, this takes some effort. I'll grant you that. It takes prayer. It takes listening intently to sermons. It takes attending Bible studies. It takes setting aside time yourself to read the Bible in secret and to pray in your personal devotions, to meditate upon its truths, not just to let it lie there as if the duty is done because it was read, but to meditate upon those things. It takes challenging ourselves with reading good Christian books, what I call jello books, those Christian books that are all flimsy. You're better playing with it than eating it. They all kind of taste the same. Read books that challenge your mind. Affect your heart, to stir your affection. One of my favorite things as a pastor is when people in the church email me and they, they ask for book recommendations on some doctrine or some topic or some study. Ah, love it. And this is a good church for it. I probably get one of those a week. Read good books. And some of you aren't readers, but 15 minutes a day of reading. We can all do that. 15 minutes a day. You'd be shocked how many books you can devour over the course of a year. Just 15 minutes a day. And as you grow in this knowledge of the Lord, it shapes you. It forms you. Volition follows cognition. But I think the reverse is true as well. If you look at verse 10 and note the participles that Paul employs here. He puts four of them together. He says, bearing fruit. He's talking about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. He says, bearing fruit, increasing, being strengthened in verse 10, and then giving thanks in verse 12. And they're all in the present tense. And, and they all emphasize the idea of progress. And so I think it is probably right to conclude here that as the Colossian Christians, as they honor God with their living, 
the more God reveals himself to you. The more we honor God with our living, the more he reveals himself to you. Each causes the other right knowledge and right living and a wonderful kind of reciprocal, dynamic, mutually encouraging relationship inform one another and build one another up and lift us up to heaven. Grow in knowledge and as we live in light of that knowledge. We were talking as elders the other night. I commented that I uh, immediately fell in love with something about URC when I started laboring here and it continues to be my, my favorite thing about this church. And that is that both of these things are true. Immediately recognize that this is a, this is a church that is serious about truth. You want theological precision. You want doctrinal integrity. And that has always marked URC for 50 years. And yet it's not that alone. You have this deep love for growing in the knowledge of the Lord, and, and it's accompanied by a, a deep, godly living. There's a, a gracious winsomeness about this congregation. You love truth. You walk in it. A long line of faithfulness here. Hospitality has marked this congregation. Love for the laws. Sending missionaries around the world, training pastors and sending them out. Greeting undergraduates and enfolding them into your families and caring for them. Graduate students from other countries, inviting them into your home for meals. Welcoming the stranger. Living life together. It's a culture of welcoming and loving and extending grace. A love for the word of God and knowledge of it that manifests itself in living holy lives together. It's a wonderful history. But there's more ahead for URC. I'd be so bold as to say that I think the best days of this church should be ahead, not behind it. How can I say that? Because the best days of every Christian should be ahead, not behind it. So it is true for the Christian, so it is true for the church. That is, if, if we keep growing in our knowledge of the Lord and living lives that are more pleasing to Him, but we keep walking on, and as we walk, our understanding of God grows. The, the relationship becomes sweeter. We bear more fruit to maintain Paul's language. We increase in the knowledge of God. Let's keep praying. Let's keep laboring towards it. Just to close, let's allow Paul to remind us of the hope we have in praying such a prayer. Paul knows us. He knows these Colossians. You might read words like this and think this is pie in the sky kind of 
wishful thinking, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. How can that be true of us as a congregation? How, one of you may be asking in your mind, can that be true of me? Fully pleasing? I can't seem to to kill this sin that has marked me for so long of gossip or lust or coveting or greed. Loving others more fully. I I am so hurt by people in the church. I, I can't imagine extending myself. Growing in my knowledge of the Lord. Tired. Wore out. So weak that you are and that we are. Christ is strong. Verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience. Just to make it sting a little more, he says, with joy. Power. And not any power, Paul is telling these Colossians, but the very power of God. Paul prays about this power in Ephesians 1, and there he prays that the Ephesian church might know what is the immeasurable greatness of this power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. You, dear Christians of University Reformed Church, you have resurrection power working in you and for you. Resurrection power. You attempt to Live this kind of life that Paul prays for on our own strength, we will fail. But the Christian has wholly otherworldly power. And so Paul is painting a picture for them and for us. He says, Christ's resurrection, it meant utter triumph. You see, death could not hold him. Hell had no claim on him. The devil had no right to him. Sin had no power over him. He triumphed over all his enemies and all our enemies, making them a footstool beneath his feet. And Paul says that power, which is already the Christians in Christ, is ours. He isn't praying that they would receive this power. It's already at work within them. He just prays that they would be strengthened by it. By that strength, that they would be able to endure and have patience as they continue to walk along together and pursue Christ together and grow in fullness of knowledge of God together and live holy lives together and do it all with joy. Look at that language. End of verse 12. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's done. It's done. 
He has already qualified us, already delivered us, already transferred us, already redeemed us, already forgiven us. And the work He has begun in us, He will bring to completion. He does not abandon His people. So we need not fear. Just as these Colossians needed not fear. Those He has delivered, He does not abandon. Let's simply look to Him and seek to live for Him. And let's pray that big prayer for one another as we support one another in this very aim and goal. As a church, as a body, as a fellowship, as a family. Our Father, we're thankful that our prayers can never be too big for you. We're thankful that we have such a sovereign God, an all-powerful God, and a God who looks upon his children with affection and love. Would you work in us your will, fill us with your knowledge, Help us to walk in a manner that is fully pleasing to you. And may we encourage one another along this path as fellow pilgrims. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.